Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we're talking with Rick Springfield. He made his television debut in 1977 on The Six Million Dollar Man and has gone into star in numerous film and TV shows. In 1981, he won the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. This was the year of his chart-busting album, Working Class Dog, that had songs like Jesse's Girl and I've Done Everything for You. In addition to being a talented songwriter, he's the author of two books, the 2010 memoir Late Late at Night, which Rolling Stone ranked in the top 25 greatest rock memoirs of all time, and his 2014 novel Magnificent Vibration. Both were New York Times bestsellers. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I should also mention that uh, my kids and I, my kids are 13, 11, and 9, we're addicted to working class DJ. We're always on Sirius XM 80s on 8, and your show is awesome. That's uh, very interesting to hear. I, uh, I, I, don't take it seriously. I kind of have fun with it, you know, so um, I appreciate uh, anything positive. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little bit like what we're trying to do here, because on this show, we have the world's greatest writers on, and we get a, a little peek behind the scenes and, and learn a little bit more about their life and their work and their process. And you give that to the listeners on, on 80s on 8, because you've done gigs with half these guys, and you know them, and you can give a little snippet of something that kind of makes it real for the listener. Yeah, I, 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 if I don't know anything, you know, then I just say, I've never heard this song before. <laughs> you know, I'm very honest on the show and uh, drives my manager crazy. He's, he tunes in every time we're doing it and you see him shaking his head like this half the time. That's funny. Well, our drink today is coffee. I've got my steaming hot coffee here, which uh, I am a huge coffee drinker as well. But uh, in addition, I've got a bottle here of Beach Bar Rum. And I, I went for yeah. the redhead macadamia nut version, which I think you and Sammy Hagar are doing this, right? Yeah, Sammy called me up uh, during the uh, the COVID lockdown because I was thinking of getting into the alcohol business as everyone, I think, on the, on the planet must be doing. And uh, um, he said, uh, I've got this rum. Would you want to come in as a partner? So, um, you know, he's had great success with it all before. So, And we have the whole music thing in common. So it just seemed like a real natural fit. And I've known, you know, we've known each other since... 1981 so it's mm -hmm. not like it was some new uh you know some new uh, get together so it was it just seemed very natural um 
and uh, it's a great, great rum. I mean, I love the Cola Spice is my favorite. So right. I'll get that one next. Very interesting. Well, maybe in a bit, I'll drop a few ounces of this into my coffee and uh, spice it up. Yeah, that's a mixer. The macadamia nuts are a mixer. <laughs> right. So before we get into your, your life and career, there's a fun literary overlap story that you and I share that I, you couldn't know about. In 2011, I sold my first novel to Simon & Schuster to the great Stacey Kramer. Oh, wow. What was the novel? Uh, the novel's called Ghosts of Manhattan. It was about a bond salesman for Bear Stearns. Uh, it was really set in Manhattan just prior to the big collapse. It was about a marriage on Wall Street. Oh, wow. Yeah, Stacy's great. She was uh, very instrumental in in uh, the editing process uh, of my, both my memoir, which I wrote, you know, by myself without a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. The first time I'd really written any any prose that was going to be published, mm -hmm. and also inspired me to 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 write fiction because she liked my my writing style. So she's been really supportive, yeah. um, and she comes to every gig she in New York. You know, she's great. Yeah, she's she's so. When I started first getting in with Stacy and doing the editorial meetings on my my book, she basically had just come off book tour with you. So she was full of these stories about Rick Springfield, a magnificent one. So after like four meetings where the first 20 minutes is like, you know, Rick's generosity to strangers, his clever wit, the casual coolness of Rick Springfield, I'm like, all right, Stacy, you know, I, I let's focus on my book. I've had about enough of Rick Springfield. <laughs> No, she she def, definitely was a fan, you know. But uh, we've become very good friends, and um, yeah, she uh, she she travels all the time. And I'm a a big uh, Egyptology fan, uh, which since I was a little kid, I've loved uh, like the Middle Kingdom specifically and Tutankhamun specifically. Um, and she went to his tomb and sent me photos, and I was so mad. <laughs> Well, she is, she's a very talented editor, editor, first of all, but she's very loyal to her writers. I'm sure she was, you know, as you're doing a million events, she was probably supporting you the whole way. And she's just a terrific yeah. person. I actually ran into her in the airport like two months ago. And yeah. uh, she listens to this show. So, you know, Stacey, yep. Doug and Rick, your pals, say hello. Wherever you are. <laughs> Last time she texted me, she was in Australia. I think she's coming back now. She uh, well, speaking of which, that is, a, that is a good beginning to jump into your early days. You were born in New South Wales near Sydney, Australia? Yeah. Yep. And I heard um, your dad was career military, so you basically grew up on a military base. Well, the, yeah, but it wasn't like the American military bases. It was very different. We, um, they were much smaller, of course, but what they'd do is they'd buy a bunch of houses and kind of, or, or build them in a little area, and it felt very... Um, you know, neighborly. It didn't really feel like like an army base like you imagine them here. It was very small, and uh, we went to regular schools. and um, And when we we moved to England when I was a kid, and we just had a regular house in England, and then we came back to Australia, and they rented us a regular house in Australia in the suburbs. So it was. Uh, I never felt like I was being raised in the army, and I was never aware of my dad bringing it home. He was a a great guy, very loving, and not at all the uh, you know stand to attention when I talk to you boys, none of that kind of thing. Yeah. He was he was a real kind of hugger and and nurturing kind of one of the parents. So he yeah. was very very unique man. And you you got into music pretty early on. I know. Uh, I think I read you were in a band called Zoot in the like sixty nine to seventy one in Australia. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I started it when I was about fourteen. Um, had a band together, at, you know, high school band, and and played at dan um, at parties, you know, for nothing. And uh, and then I, the Zoot was actually the first band that I joined. Well, the only band I joined that really got any attention. We started to have hits in Australia, and I started writing songs. And um, <clears throat> yeah, we were a, a big band for a while in Australia, um, which meant we probably got about 60 bucks a gig <laughs> but that's where you're putting in your hours right you you uh you sort of that's developed true. your shops there and then solo career begins in 72 and that's the year you moved to america right yeah i had one hit in i wrote one hit in australia called speak to the sky and uh and then i started playing guitar for my girlfriend at, at the time it was a very weird scene in australia it wasn't like and now now it's much bigger and much um <clears throat> more competitive with america but back then it was a very small scene everybody knew everybody and and i had like this big hit solo single and then i went to play guitar with my girlfriend you know as she was a singer so that wasn't considered weird it was just no okay that's what you know it was just uh, something you did and uh, while i was with playing guitar with her i got a deal in america and uh then came over here pretty much you know uh, about about three weeks after I started playing guitar for her, I came over here. You don't really have the Aussie accent. Did you did you lose that over the? I feel like Mel Gibson has it stronger. He wasn't even born in Australia. Yeah, Mel actually Mel's American, but his American accent sucks. <laughs> He's got a terrible American accent. I hear the Australian all the way through it. Um, yeah, I went to a voice coach, and you know, when I came over here and started acting, nobody really knew. Where Australia was, I mean, I get questions like, "Well, how long did it take you to learn English?" and and which <laughs> comes from Europe to come to America, so it was pretty unknown. So I wanted to have the accent handy, so I didn't have to think about it because all the parts were for American. <clears throat> I did play an English guy uh, on uh, Rockford Files. Well, but I had the old English right. accent, you know, because I'd lived in England for a while, so that wasn't very hard. But uh, the uh, my Australian accent's still there. I just yeah, you can turn that on and off if you want. Yeah, I mean, not really. It's kind of like being bilingual, but not really. <laughs> I still dream in my old accent, which is really weird. That is funny. Yeah, I remember like studying Spanish and having my first dream in Spanish. It was it was mm -hmm. a strange experience. So in '81, you have your you begin your first run on General Hospital as as Noah Drake from '81 to I think '83, and that's the same year you come out with Working Class Dog in '81, and you're winning all these awards. I mean, this that that period must have been insane. What was that like? Uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was um, uh, very, you know, it was synchronistic. It wasn't anything planned. Everyone thought it was, oh, they got this singer on the show because he he was a singer and, and he was going to have a record out. But they didn't even know I was a singer when they hired me on General Hospital. <clears throat> and the record hadn't come out. It was just coming out, actually. And... Um, it was uh, kind of like a double fuse to the rocket, really. Um, mm. uh, was very powerful launch because of the two mediums, you know. But yeah. it came with this downside. I mean, there were radio stations playing Jesse's Girl, uh, but when they found out I was on a soap opera, they assumed I was, you know, just a one-dimensional soap opera geek who was given a song and taught to sing in tune for three minutes, you know. So they dr and dropped the song. Um, luckily they picked it up later on, but, uh, some radio stations dropped the song. 
Yeah, yeah. Some like the what they used to call AOR, which was album oriented rock. They played the song because it was guitar based and it was, you know, basically a power pop song that fit their their uh, playlist. But when they found out I was also that I came from a soap opera, they they thought it must have been fake. So they dropped it. A lot of them dropped it. That's it. You're like the double thread of, you know, J-Lo before there was J-Lo. You know, you had both both things working at yeah, once. And it seems like they help, but maybe they don't always. I have a different shape, but. <laughs> that fortunately for you. Yeah. Um, so at, at this point of the show, usually like once the guest is sort of introed and we have a sense of their career, I like to do a quick pause and talk about writing process. And with you, this is this is a first for the show because there's two angles to come at your songwriting and your and your book writing. If we start with the songwriting, can you give us a sense of how you do it? Is, is it a kind of a longer drawn out process or could you sit down in a cafe and and write a song in like a fever dream? Um, you've probably heard before, but it. It, it, it's both and it the initial you know it's like um it's really true that the initial the initial good good part of the song comes through you i i really believe you just got to get out of the way and let the good part come through but then once you've got the kind of the inspiration and the good part then you got to do the hard work of of finishing it and putting it all together and that that's taken a day to three months for me for different songs uh, I sometimes write so a couple of songs at the same time. Uh, lately, I have just finished a new album, and that was, uh, it was a different a process. Every time's a different kind of process. Like the one before, I think I wrote the lyrics first, whereas this one, it was all about a hook and finding a good uh, melodic um, hook, uh, and but also keeping the discipline of keeping the chords the same all through the song, verse, chorus, same, same chord progression. And I did that just as a discipline to see if I could do it. And, and um, so you could put the verse over the chorus or the chorus over the verse. It, it was the same progression. Uh, but lyrically, you know, it's, it's whatever's going on in my head. And uh, I find as I get older, a lot, of it is, a lot of it is kind of from history. You know, it's like stuff that happened. Um, but it's also... All the sex stuff is about stuff that happened. All the stuff about God and and life and death is about now. So it, it's a yeah. it's a mix of of inspirational uh, points in my life. Well, I, I have been wondering about some of the stories behind you know some of the songs. How many are are personal anecdotes? I mean, I know you've like Sammy Hagar wrote. I think you guys met in '81 because he wrote one of the songs for you. But you've written most of your material. And I, I imagine their personal stories. And for example, like who is Jesse? Who was his girl? It was at a, uh, a stained glass class I was at. I was unsure about whether I could, I would make it as a musician at this point, like 1979. I'd had three albums out. And apart from Speak to the Sky being a hit in 1972, I'd had no hits. I'd started acting. I was in, uh, I was a contract player at Universal in, from 1975 on until they closed the contract deal. And that, that got me in, you know, Incredible Hulk and, and Rockford Files, Battlestar Galactica, you know, shows like that as a guest star. So I started thinking, well, maybe I'm an actor more than I'm a musician, but always, you know, music was always first. And then I started thinking, well, the, the, I, I got, maybe I sh my mom was right. I should have something to fall back on. She always wanted me to, to be a pl get a plumber's license or an electrician license, something to fall back on when the music didn't pan out. As she, you know, as everyone was sure it wouldn't. We all thought it would last a couple of years, and that was it. 
Um, but I, I was pretty focused and said, no, this is what I want to do. Uh, but at 1979, I started thinking, well, maybe mom was right, you know. So I, I looked at stained glass classes because I love to work with my hands. And, uh, and I guess I thought I could support my future family being a stained glass master, which was about as silly as thinking <laughs> I could make a living as an actor or a musician. So I went to this stained glass class and there was this girl there that was just so hot and uh, she had a boyfriend there and uh, she didn't want anything to do with me. So I, like I said, I took my sexual angst home and wrote a song about it. Worked it out <laughs> in a song. That's great. So do you have any, uh, like their old napkins with the inspiration of a song on them or, you know, a single yeah, I, scrap I, of I paper? I actually kept all, most of my lyrics. I had the original Jesse's Girl complete with cross outs and everything on it. I have uh, Don't Talk to Strangers and Love Somebody. I've always kept all my initial writings of songs. Like I'll, I'll see help in a book and there'll be a title that became a song. And I go, wow, I didn't realize I'd written that down before, you know? Um, so I've, I've always loved that, uh, that aspect of songwriting. Uh, I have actually started collecting Beatle lyrics because of that, because I love that moment of creation. Yeah. And I have uh, I have one of the biggest, or probably the biggest private collection of handwritten Beatle lyrics now because of that. Because I started collecting them a long time ago when they weren't, you know, worth what they're worth. So um, My, yeah, there must be millions now. They, they, some of yours you should put under glass in the Hall of Fame or something so we can go check that out. Yes, I agree with you. That's such a cool moment. <laughs> yeah. So how is it different for you on the books? What's it? Oh, writing prose. Uh, it tastes longer and it doesn't have to rhyme. <laughs> Simply put, yeah. Do you outline the books ahead of time, or you, or do you oh, dive in? No, I just, I just start it and don't know where it's going to go, and I'm excited to get back to it because I want to find out what, where, what's going to happen. Um, I know the the proper process to outline the book, but I've, I found that just launching into it you everything's wide open and 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 yeah. i've always been a big believer in the shoemaker's elves where as you sleep you know that's when things happen i don't know if you know the story of the shoemaker's elves it's this this shoemaker back in austria or somewhere that was poor and he prayed to have successful shoe business and he slept and these elves came in at night and made these amazing shoes and so i'm a big believer in that when you sleep you know a lot of the work is done in your head and uh and so that's how I write, basically, mm -hmm. both songs and um, and mainly prose, because I really don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, it's interesting. It's about 50-50 on the show, I would say. There are certain writers who've come on, like Lee Child and Brad Thor, who say they, they are adamantly against outlining. They feel like it takes some of the energy out of it, and they want to discover it along you know, with the reader. They don't know, they, it's better for them if they don't know what's happening next. There's more energy in the story that way. I thought it was just me being an uh, an untrained write, uh, prose writer. <laughs> no, I mean you know Lee Child's selling about as many books as anybody, uh, but then there are others like Amor Tolls or or Minjin Lee who are you know obsessive outliners. So you can kind of go either way. So a as a talented writer in both books and songwriting, but you're also on the acting side. Did you ever think about writing scripts, or would you ever look at some of these scripts from you know GH and think you know th this is nonsense? We, we can do better than this. Oh my God, the GH scripts constantly were, oh my God, this is nonsense. <laughs> the terrible, it's terrible writing on, I mean, but it's not terrible writing. It's a, it's amazing that they can write an hour so fast and it could be shot so fast and still have something that's like 
fairly watchable. You know, it's really the hardest mm -hmm. acting gig and it's probably the hardest writing gig because there's no action. It's all talking heads and it's constant dialogue. And it's they it's just really difficult stuff, which is, you know, I've, obviously I've been invited to go back, but but it's it's such a hard gig. It's yeah. all, and for me, it was all about line memorization. It's not like, you know, when you do a movie or a, even a TV movie, you got you got time to work on the character and and what you're saying, you know, but with General Hospital, they'd hand you a five page scene and say, we're shooting this in 30 minutes. And so it'd be all about, oh, my God, what my next line, you know, it sounds like boot camp for acting a little bit. I mean, you can yeah, really get your is, hours and sort of hone your chops. Yeah, it, it it was great for that, you know, hitting marks, being aware of lights, you know, shutting the camera out in your mind, that kind of thing. It was perfect for that. Um, I don't know how good it was for my acting shops. I, I got better as I started working with, you know, more, had more time and working with different actors and that kind of thing. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you've been throughout your career, you've been very open about your struggles with depression and uh, <clears throat> courageously, you know, talking about it early on when it was more stigmatized. I mean, it's it's much, maybe thanks to you, much less stigmatized today and more, you know, people are much more open to talking about it. But uh, how, how have you, I mean, really for decades sort of managed all that and been so successful? Uh, <clears throat> um, I start. I first mentioned it in my autobiography and, and with all the, you know, all the gratuitous sex and all the rock and roll crap that it's, it's kind of, they ask you to put in there. I thought that's what everyone would focus on, but everybody focused on the depression because they were, uh, like you said, it was stigmatized. It, it was something you didn't talk about. But for me, it was it's very powerful to talk about it, and it was part of it's part of my life. So to leave it out would leave out a big reason of why I'm where I am or where I'm not. You know, it's it's a mm -hmm. it, it's a big driver in me, and I realized that quite a while ago that it's not all terrible i mean it's part of my drive it's part of me constantly thinking i'm not enough and i have to keep producing something to feel worthwhile so i mean there's a you know there's even actually a good side to being depressed i guess but it, it is a bitch and it's uh um I, I think probably the best thing I did was was talk about it. I've had so many people come up and say thanks for. I talk about it on stage too. I do a song called "World Start Turning" from uh, a 1986 album called "Rock of Life." That's the first song I wrote about being depressed, and it and I wrote it to lift myself up, and it it really lifts me up during the show. I mean, it's hard to very hard to be depressed when you're in front of you know thousands of people screaming for your songs outside of that it, it uh i still deal with it you know and um i met i started meditating over the last couple of years that's been instrumental in in dealing with it but it's something i deal with all the time and uh and i and if i'm an example of uh that you can still have a degree of success and and you know and, and deal with depression then i'm you know that's kind of a good lesson in itself i guess yeah, well, de definitely an inspiration to people. I think that's why you know people connected with it so much and wanted to you know come back to you to hear more about it and and how you're how you're, how you're managing all that. So it, toward the end of the show, we do a uh, like a lightning round of quick questions. But before I I get into that, I wanted to ask you. Uh, there was a, it came out a couple years ago. This is just sort of a funny news item I came across recently. Kellyanne Conway, who's former counselor to the White House, had in her high school yearbook. 
that her life ambition was to kiss Rick Springfield. And this might be the life ambition of many high school yearbook women out there, but are, are you aware of this news item that but maybe it could be in like a, you know, a high school fundraiser kissing booth type of format? You, you could actually raise uh, a lot of money that way. Well, it's, it's funny. I, um, my guitar player, uh, George, wanted, to get, wanted me to marry them, him and his girlfriend, right? So I went online and for 34 bucks, I became a minister, a legal minister of the Universal Life Church so that I could marry them. And we started joking about uh, a merch item where you could say, you know, when you were 14, you wanted Rick Springfield to marry you. Well, now you can. <laughs> I, can be, I can preside over your marriage. But um, I, I've, I've married a couple of people, but just friends, you know, but uh, um, hmm, the kissing booth, I don't know. It's a little dangerous these days. Yeah, yeah, you got to, uh, I don't recommend that. Mm-mm. All right, so on to the lightning round for Rick. Your favorite oh. book as a kid. My favorite book as a kid uh, was Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and Dorian Gray by um, Am I thinking of Oscar Wilde. Yes, they were my two almost bibles you know i had them by my bed and i read them a couple of times and it just i loved the writing and uh um, i was always a big horror fan anyway i mean i read specifically just horror stories as a kid but uh i ventured out you know i mean i wouldn't call dorian gray a horror story but it's uh it has elements of that yeah it's a little creepy that the painting actually Um, we lived down the street from uh bram stoker's great great grandson Wow. Is he is he in the horror, you know, universe in some way? No, no, he's a very nice guy. Um, not into um, blood drinking or anything like that. He's a very regular dude. <laughs> All right. Uh, book or books you're reading now? Uh, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, actually, which was given to me by my uh, son and his wife, Josh and Hannah. Um, again, it's more stuff about Tutankhamun and the, and the whole discovery of, of the tomb. Uh, and uh, I just, I, I know most of it, but it's still, it's like the Titanic. When you when you have a passion for something, you cannot read enough about it. Yeah. Uh, and I know most of the stuff, but I'm finding new stuff in there. But it's, uh, I probably have pretty much every book that's ever been written about the discovery of his tomb and his goods and everything. And I, when I was a kid, I was nine years old and we, we went to England. My dad was in the army, like you said, and we, he was posted over to England and we went by ship. And it was the last of the great ships before they became the, the terrible, you know, cruise monsters they are now. But it was, we, it was very small and, uh, and we stopped off at ports and one of them was Cairo. And I remember walking in, we went into the Cairo Museum because my mom is a history buff. And I'm just walking around as a kid looking at all these mommies and going, ooh, cool, dead people. But then I walk into this room and there's walls of gold. And again, as a kid, oh my God, treasure, how amazing. It was Tutankhamun's burial chambers. And it blew my mind. And I, uh, I, from that moment on, I read everything I could about uh, his his burial and his life and his the, Howard Carter and how he found it and what was in there. And, and it's, uh, so that's a book I'm reading now. <laughs> have you ever written a song about any of that? I have not. I haven't found out a word that rhymes with Tutankhamun yet. Yeah, well, we'll leave that to Steve Martin. He's got the uh, he's got King the corner of yes. the market on King Tut. It's a very, very, very disrespectful song, but it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Uh, it would have to be The Crown. Uh, it's really the only TV show 
apart from Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits old episodes, she's about the only TV show uh, I've watched in recent memory. I'm not a big TV watcher, um, but my wife and I started we we started watching that together. And the first the first ones with the young ones are the young queen. She's amazing in that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so we watch that's that's the one I've watched pretty much. Uh -huh. yeah. How about your pick for greatest guitarist of all time? Uh, Jeff Beck <laughs> uh, would have Jeff to be Beck. probably probably the most stunning player. Um, Hendrix, I, I would pick up there, but Jeff Beck, uh, Hendrix was very it was blues based and uh, and he was amazing at it. And a lot of his his stuff is stuff that was played before, but it's his just his feel and his songwriting and his performance he was just such a complete i mean he's a looks so hot on stage with the guitar he wears the guitar better than anybody else and mm -hmm. uh it just so fits him and and i i love that's why i watch love to watch him live he looks he just the guitar is just part of his body um and he had these giant fingers and it makes it look like the guitar neck is like two inch you know an inch wide or something but it, uh but beck i i i never could figure out how he was doing what he was doing i was a fan of his when i was 16 when he was in the yardbirds and he was doing amazing stuff and he just kept growing and growing until this the, the stuff he was doing at the end was just just mind-blowingly different it, there's nothing like it no player like him or will ever be a player like him oh that's great I, I love hearing artists talk about other artists in that way you just get a more insightful view into what makes them special and different you know because from a lay person, you, you know, I see someone do an incredible guitar riff and I can't tell the difference between, you know, great and genius, you know, yeah. it's all no, just no, sort of I, one or the other I, to me. I, I get that. I can play fast on the guitar, but it's not, you know, but Eddie Van Halen could play fast, could play everything fast and, and was amazing. And, and, yeah. and Jeff Beck, I can't even begin to, uh, to know to figure out how he did what he did he play he dropped his pick one day and figured he could he play with his fingers so he started playing with his fingers instead of a guitar pick and he uses this whammy bar really uniquely he had the most amazing control of the whammy bar he could play whole lines just with the whammy bar which is incredible and um yeah i just love him do you have I, a thought on, on greatest uh greatest rock front man or front woman uh, Roger Daltrey or uh, mm. or Robert Plant, I would say. Um, Daltrey became w was interesting because he changed all. Th he was started out as this like Shepherd's Bush punk that you know had a problem with everything and just looked like he was, you know, had to sing these songs almost like regretfully. Uh, with but but when Tommy came out and he assumed the role of Tommy, it totally changed. <clears throat> became this real amazing frontman. With, he let his hair grow and he was had his chest real cut and and um and i think robert plant actually copped quite a bit from uh from roger Daltrey's initial uh look for tommy so uh, and overall he's just very they're both really exciting to watch as frontmen mm -hmm. um there are you know there's great frontmen they're they're my favorites just because uh of the music but uh you know you can't i mean oh, it's just an opinion, you know, it's not. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, to see, you know, you know, that sort of how they can influence one another. I think I read an article once that Mick Jagger was influenced by James Brown and you can kind of trace back 
Dude, I, my manager was uh, Steve Binder when I first came over here from Australia. He was the one who directed the Elvis Presley special, right? The one that brought Elvis back. And he did a movie called Tammy, Teenage Music International, that, that was uh, shot at the Santa Monica Civic. And it had Smokey Robinson, Jerry and the Pacemakers, James Brown had the Rolling Stones, one of their first appearances. Um, and a bunch of acts. The, it's an amazing show, really. Is everybody sounds great, but James Brown came on and was dancing like you know, doing all this foot stuff. And Steve said that Mick Jagger was back in the dressing room, stoned and freaking out because James, because you know they were love James Brown, and they said, "Oh my God, but, you know he's so awesome." So Mick Jagger went on and he starts doing all this foot stuff that copies James Brown. You can see it on the show. It's amazing, and that's kind of almost where his whole, you know, his whole dancing as a front man became. He's a great front man too, amazing front man. I, I definitely name him up there too. Yeah. Uh, just, just on the longevity factor alone. I mean, the guy's been doing it for 60 years. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's incredible. I mean, uh, he still runs around nonstop on stage. Yeah. Well, last question for Rick Springfield, uh, one piece of good advice for listeners on, on any topic, writing, songwriting, performing, Wow. Oh, if you're going to become anything, especially a musician or an actor, uh, you have to absolutely want it. <laughs> yeah. You can't go, yeah, I wouldn't mind being him. You got to absolutely, you know, I'm asked a lot about people saying, yeah, my, my kid wants to be a guitar player. My kid wants to do this, you know, wants to be an actor, wants to be a singer. What should I tell them? And um, I say, uh, they've got to absolutely want it uh with no no uh exit door um that's the only way i think you become successful like my mom wanted me to have a you know a backup career and i knew that wouldn't serve me i think even as a 17 year old i knew that that wouldn't help me and you know it's not just for music for everything to be successful in anything you have to be prepared to take the blows and, uh, you know, there's a lot of time, especially if you're your own boss, like a musician or an actor, there's a lot of times when you're alone, you know, and it's just you. And that's, that was the hard times for me was, uh, being alone in my Hollywood apartment, wondering if, you know, I was ever going to get anywhere. And it's just you at that point. So you got to be prepared to, you know, to take the hard stuff. It's not all tits and champagne, as they say. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's well, that's probably I probably can't say that now. <laughs> well, that, that is, uh, that's great right. advice. Hard, hard to work, you know, without being passionate about it, you're not going to work as hard as you need to work to be great. You have um, to work when, you, when you're at your lowest. Yeah. Well, Rick, you're awesome. That was so fun talking to you. I, I really appreciate it. How do you sign off your show? It's, it's uh, kiss your mom, hug your dog. Or right? hug your dog and, or hug your, hug your mom and kiss your dog, either one, whatever, you know, depends <laughs> how mom is at the moment if she's uh yeah awesome well thanks so much it was great talking to you thanks a lot if you enjoyed this podcast please download rate subscribe write a comment let me know the authors you want to hear from i read all the comments thank you Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and 
producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 